Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, the story may be the same across the emerging markets, that debts are owed in dollars, while revenue for a variety of companies is actually received in devalued emerging markets currencies. Here to tell us more about the situation and its potential ramifications is Bill Rhodes. He's the president and the chief executive of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. He is also the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons in Global Finance. Bill Rhodes, thank you very much for coming into the studio. This issue of debts owed in dollars, but companies earn in local currency. How bad is it going to get? Well, as you know, you have my uh, op-ed that I did for Reuters on uh, June 22nd, where I forecast uh the situation getting worse in Argentina, although people at that point were optimistic because they had just gotten a, a loan from the IMF, a record loan of $50 billion, and also predicted that at that point, because the election hadn't taken place yet in uh, in Turkey, that Erdogan would win and it was going to be a disaster. I went into his interest rate policy because he th- thinks the best way to fight inflation is to drop interest rates. It's unique vision of the world, and he put his son-in-law in his Ministry of Treasury and Finance to implement his program. So what have we seen? In the case of Turkey, uh, in addition to the Argentine problem, uh, we see a country like Argentina who has tremendous indebtedness in dollars. Uh, and also, the banking system in Turkey is is having problems because of the buildup in non-performing because the companies in, uh, uh, in Turkey have borrowed very heavily in dollars. And you have now a, uh, a depreciation of the currency of some 43% since the beginning of the year, inflation reaching 18%. And it's not clear what Turkey's going to do. At least in the case of Argentina, they say they finally will get away from their gradualist uh, program, which they call gradualismo, uh, and put in somewhat of a shock program. And the IMF uh, says that they will be dispersing uh, additional money from the 50 billion. So that's going on. But you have problems elsewhere. South Africa to also has heavy borrowings in foreign currencies, both dollars and euros. And they're in the first recession in nine years. Uh, and their currency is also reaching record lows. And then we go back to Indonesia, shades of the Asian financial crisis. And the, and the value of the ruby is uh, has uh, reached uh, vis-a-vis the dollar the lowest rate since the Asian financial crisis. So we see a lot of of spreading problems. And then, of course, we have the big elections in Brazil, uh, you know, which is the biggest economy of all the ones I've mentioned. And there you have an absolute mess as to who will emerge as a winner. The extreme right, Bolsonaro, ex-army captain who says that he's really going to basically uh, put the troops on the streets there permanently, uh, or the extreme left, uh, the, the successor to Lula and the People's uh, Party and the Workers' Party. And so it's very unclear what the situation is in Brazil. So you have all the elements of contagion. Now, I'm not saying that we're looking at 2007 uh, or we're looking at the Asian financial crisis, but I think 
we have to remember that emerging markets can drag developed markets into the tank. And I think the markets here in the United States, with all this liquidity still slashing around, have not taken into consideration that uh, our friend Powell at the Fed is going to raise interest rates two more times this year and will continue next year. And this, of course, puts more pressure on the currencies and the ability of these countries to pay. That was the origin of the 82 Latin American debt crisis, the Asian financial crisis. And so I'm saying we've seen this movie. Each time it's different, but we ought to take it uh, seriously. At what point will it kind of hit a, a crucial point where there's sort of a denouement of some of these pressures? I think that uh, as you see uh, the Fed uh, raising interest rates, and remember, they're running down their quantitative easing uh, in uh, in Europe. Uh, <clears throat> Draghi is uh, already stated he's going to stop the quantitative easing by the end of the year. So I think that people will start reflecting that we're nine years going into 10 years since the Great Recession. And I, I think that maybe you, you might see people starting to pull back somewhat by the end of the year. Now, uh, you know, the Trump administration says, forget about that. We're on to nirvana for the next four, at least till 2020, when the presidential election will go on. But they're not taking into account some of the, 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 the uh, events and actions which, which I'm talking about. So people are still out there buying stocks for record high of the Dow. Uh, the dollar's a record high. Unemployment's a record low, could go lower. But we have to remember that that was a similar situation at the time of the Asian financial crisis. Hmm. And it was a similar situation. Of course, we had runaway inflation of the, in the Latin American debt crisis, and we're, inflation so far is very, very tame. But I don't think that uh, Powell, uh, Chairman Powell, is going to take into consideration what's going on in the emerging markets because yeah. his primary responsibility is the United States of America. Yeah, this could be a warning shot, though. We have much more uh, with Bill Rhodes coming up. Stick with us. Bill Rhodes, president and chief executive of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, author of the book Banker to the World. It's a wonderful read. I recommend you get it. He is a former senior advisor uh, for City Current, and he helped restructure the debt of a number of sovereign entities uh, over the years. So fantastic insight. We're going to head to China next. We're awaiting uh, the potential tariffs that could come out this week. It is the opinion piece heard around the world. The New York Times op-ed that was penned by an anonymous author titled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. Here to talk about the potential fallout from this is Al Hunt, columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. Al, thank you so much for being with us. You know, this is seemingly a bombshell in terms of the potential effects and the potential crisis within the White House in terms of being able to try trust uh, one another. What's your big takeaway? And do you think that we're going to find out who authored this piece? I think there's a bombshell uh, almost every hour, Lisa. So uh, we've almost debased the term. Uh, but you're right. It's huge. I've never I've been in Washington, I will confess to you, for almost half a century. I've never seen anything quite like this these last couple of weeks. Uh, I think it was an extraordinary 
column. Uh, one can argue about whether uh, it should have been written or not, uh, but I have no doubt, knowing the New York Times editorial page editor, that it was it was bona fide. But it's also not surprising. Uh, uh, it, it, it conforms with what Bob Woodward has written. It's, it's come out this week. It conforms with what's been reported by major news organizations. It conforms with what we know about Donald Trump. And the other point I would make, Lisa, is it's hard to imagine these series of inside revelations from any other president for a simple reason. They commanded some loyalty. Trump commands no loyalty for a very simple reason. He gives no loyalty. Al Hunt. All right. You've been at it for, as you said, almost half a century. I was going to ask you what it was like to cover the administration of Woodrow Wilson. Um, well, the McKinley years were the best. Yeah, weren't they? Uh, <laughs> the reason I bring up Woodrow Wilson is because the substance of the op-ed makes it clear that there is a cadre of officials who are working behind the scenes in order to restrain the president or guide the president, however you want to describe it. But we've had situations like this before, haven't we? Yeah, we have. When Wilson was incapacitated, that was the case. Um, but but uh, that was uh, in 1919 and 1920. It was before the nuclear age. It was easier to do that in those times. There was a sense that the people that were doing it were, were generally reflecting uh, Wilson's policies, wishes. He also was very much of a, of a lame duck president. He couldn't get the League of Nations through or any of that. I think this is <clears throat> different and it's more serious because I think you have you know a man uh, who is um, – I, I want to say psychologically unsuited for the job. That's not my expertise, but certainly he is substantively and temperamentally and emotionally unfit for the job, and that makes him dangerous. And I think people around him know that. So, and secondly, with a couple exceptions, and I would point out Jim Mattis certainly is one, there aren't a whole lot of really good people around him. So I have to wonder, I mean, markets have treated what you're describing uh They've simply shrugged it off, and any turmoil seen in the White House hasn't necessarily bled out into the markets at all. That might change when it comes to the midterm elections, and that is where the focus is right now, and especially as we see these, these contentious hearings going on in the Senate right now with Brett Kavanaugh to become the next Supreme Court member. Do you think that uh, pieces like what we saw in the New York Times weaken Republican power more generally or just go after President Trump himself and his leadership? Well, I think uh, it's hard to divorce the popularity and the standing of a president from his, that of his party in the midterm elections. There are other factors. But <clears throat> I, would be, I would be stunned if the Democrats don't have a pretty big night uh, in November. Uh, I think they'll take back the House. Probably not the Senate, but the Republicans won't make the kind of gains they once expected in the Senate. Democrats probably win, I don't know, seven, eight, ten uh, governorships, including some big ones. Uh, I don't know how the market will react to that. I do have a feeling that Trump won't react well to that. Al Hunt, we've been monitoring the hearings that are currently taking place before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the hearings to speak to and elicit information from Judge Brett Kavanaugh, appointed to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. The senators that are on the committee, they've been in the Senate a long time. So does the argument that, oh, gee, it used to be collegial in the past— does that really hold any water? 
it's exaggerated. I think it's worse today, but it's exaggerated. Don't forget the uh, the Bork hearings. Uh, you know, don't forget that there was a time back in the 60s where Republicans were trying to impeach a Supreme Court Justice, William O. Douglas. Uh, so the idea that it was all these come-by-eye moments uh, before and now it's really nasty and ugly is exaggerated. But it's certainly there was more comedy. Uh, there was more collegiality. And there was less less bitterness than there was before. I think the really – look, the Democrats – no, they're almost certainly going to lose this one. I think what really embitters them, though, is 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 how really unconscionably uh, Merrick Garland was treated in 2016 by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. He should, there should have been a vote on Judge Garland, just as there should be a vote on Judge Kavanaugh. And I think that bitterness is carried over, and they're fighting a losing battle, but they, they really feel aggrieved. Do you think that there will be any blowback when Mitch McConnell maybe takes the Senate floor if indeed the Democrats are in the majority in the House after the midterm elections, as you describe? Well, he's got a, he's got a very difficult act uh, because he's going to have to deal with Trump. He's going to have to deal with his caucus. and He's going to have to deal with the likelihood of a Democratic uh, a speaker and majority leader. And he's up for re-election in 2020. And as we say, he ain't a spring chicken. So he's got, he, you know, Mitch McConnell is going to have a lot of conflicts come uh, next January. All right, we're going to leave it there. But thanks very much, uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Al Hunt, on the ins and outs and ups and downs in Washington, D.C. Ostensibly, the tech hearings on Capitol Hill this week were to assess the national security concerns, especially given the foreign interference in domestic elections. What we got wasn't necessarily that. Joining us now to talk about what that means going forward in terms of oversight and national security is Clint Watts, senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. Uh, He has served in the U.S. Army the FBI, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, as well as a number of other agencies. Clint, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what's the big takeaway from these hearings? The big takeaway, I think, is that social media is in trouble, but it's not necessarily with the government, meaning that uh, I think what we saw in the Senate yesterday was the social media companies have moved faster than the regulators. Uh, I'll give you one example, the Honest Ads Act, which was essentially the way we have political advertising on print, radio, and television should be in social media as well. Social media companies have already kind of done that on their own. You know, they've moved to match these, and yet Congress hasn't passed these very simple laws from two years ago. At the same point, what we saw in the House is this sort of bickering around politics. It was like a politics show, and the social media companies were there. It was rather silly uh, to watch. So I I think the regulation is not going to come from the U.S. What the social media companies fear is the EU. They have moved much more aggressively about data privacy. And I think uh, there was a Pew Research report that talked about how young people have marched away from Facebook, you know, deleting the app, uh, not willing to be on the platform anymore. That is the big fear, I think, for social media. It's going to come from outside the government now. Do we all need to go and rewatch the movie with Scarlett Johansson and uh, Joaquin Phoenix called Her, in which she has yeah. uh, he has a relationship with what is ostensibly an artificially intelligence-powered personality? Yeah, I... I worry about three audiences for different reasons. 
in foreign influence, I'm most worried about uh, the third world. Countries that are coming online, they've never really been on newspapers. Their first experience with the internet is through a social media app. They don't say, let's Google something. They say, let's Facebook something. You are in a, a bubble. The second one is actually the older generation in America. If you look at the people that have stayed on the platforms, it they are inexperienced with it. They don't know when they're getting duped. They're not used to these digital communications, and they're the most aggressive about their political views and kind of corrodes the environment. The third one is young people are marching away in some respects from social media and moving to what you talk about, these apps or artificial intelligence. And I, I like to say we, we were worried about the matrix overtaking our young people. Uh-uh. Our young people will enlist in the matrix. They will love it. They want to be in the matrix because it's more satisfying than the real world. That's what I'm really concerned about for the next generation that moves up. So, Clint, given what we saw from the Senate yesterday and given the fact that we didn't get a lot of hard questioning on the actual national security aspects of this, what's your feeling about how we're going to address this, especially in light of the uh, discord that we're seeing in the White House right now? I mean, is this concerning to you? Yeah, I think what we'll see over time is a fragmentation of social media into apps that is similar to the way we saw television sort of break down in cable TV news, meaning that people will start to move to platforms based on whether they satisfy their political views. And this will harden us into, I call them preference bubbles. It's part of the algorithm, which feeds you things you want, and part your own choices. You continue to choose things you like, and you get more of what you like. And so this sort of breakdown is troubling for democracy, because if you don't agree on facts, which is critical, you can't have informed policy debate, you get gridlock in Congress, much like we've already seen. Uh, you see it sort of see flip-flopping back and forth between political parties around the world in democracies where it's right, then left, then right, then left. And you really can't secure the country. It becomes, uh, for those that can manipulate the platforms, those that can ma manipulate people's minds, I, I really think we're entering an area where authoritarians have figured out after open media how to control it and, and really how to dominate it. Messing with the enemy. Surviving in a social media world of hackers, terrorists, Russians, and fake news. This is your latest book. What do you recommend people do? I think the big thing we can do is get back to picking good filters. We have gone through this era over the last 30 years that unfiltered is better. And that goes for everything. If you remember movies, the unrated, the uncut version and that we actually know what's good for us. No brokers, no middlemen, right. no middle women. And, and this raw reporting, raw feeds, uh, if I see the actual emails, I'll be able to know the context of everything. That actually isn't true. Uh, know when you're an expert and know when you're not. We believe that if we have a connection to the internet, we're just as smart as everybody else. And, and uh, there's a guy named Tom Nichols that talks about the death of expertise. We need to recognize when we are strong and when we're not, and when we're not, what filters to gravitate towards. And I think ultimately moving back to having responsible journalism, responsible news outlets, uh, going to information sources that have an editorial process is a good thing, not a bad thing. And that people need to realize sometimes they are misleading themselves and they have no one else to blame but themselves for doing that. Clint, we just have about a minute here, but I'd love to get your thoughts on the anonymous op-ed that was published in the New York Times I'm wondering, you know, President Trump said that this is a national security concern. Is it? I think in, he has a, a small part of uh, truth possibly in it, which is, is consistent with his rhetoric. But what if we have uh, officials in the executive branch that aren't following orders, are not following procedures, are not following laws? And that is a soft revolt uh, in, in some ways. It can be viewed that way. 
at the same point, uh, we're seeing someone uh, who's leading the White House in many ways breaking political norms and testing things that our Constitution really didn't ever think would happen, right? We, we have gaps in our laws, essentially. So, yeah, I'm concerned. You know, if everybody does their job and follows the Constitution, I like to look at Rod Rosenstein. I think that's a great example over the last year of someone who follows procedure, knows their roles, and regardless of political parties, stands as ground. If we have people like that, I think the country is fine. But if we don't, if we start breaking into this separate competing polls, then I'm going to get a little bit concerned. Thanks very much for being with us. Clint Watts is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. You can follow him on Twitter at Selected Wisdom. His new book, Messing with the Enemy. You know, Lisa, when you think of biotechnology companies, you think of Cambridge, Massachusetts, you think of Silicon Valley, San Diego in California, of course, but you don't necessarily think of China. And that is changing. One of the reasons that it's changing is that Chinese uh, authorities, the government there has actually stipulated that the biotechnology sector should account for in excess of 4% of gross domestic product by 20 20, and that there should be between 10 to 20 life science parks that are dedicated for biomedicine. And here to tell us more about this particular aspect of the industry is Brad Longcar. He is the chief executive of Longcar Investments. They're based in Lenexa, Kansas. He's also the index provider for a new ETF. It is called the Longcar China Biopharma ETF. The symbol is CHNA, and he joins us here in studio. Brad, thank you very much for being here. Did I describe that correctly vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese government and what their plans are for the biotech sector in China? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You hit the nail right on the head. There's four or five elements that are making this happen, and the government is a big one. They have a program called Made in China 2025, and the goal behind that program is to upgrade their economy to higher value sectors. Everyone, of course, thinks of China as a manufacturing-based economy. They want to be leaders in tech and biotech, and so they're putting a lot of effort behind that. But that's really just one element. It's obviously an important one, but uh, you know, until today, China didn't really even have a biotech sector. For example, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange had a rule that said, if you don't earn revenue, you can't list on our exchange. And so if you think about it, most biotech companies are conducting science and developing new things and don't earn revenue. And so the exchange realized that innovation is what drives the global economy, just like the government. And on April 30th, they instituted a new rule specifically for biotech companies that allow biotech companies to list there for the very first time. Already 10 have signed up to IPO and two have happened. A company called Askelitis and another one, Bygene, which already trades here on the NASDAQ. And we think there may be dozens and dozens over the coming year. And so I think this is an exciting moment because it may be just the very start of their biotech sector. I'm struck by the concept of trying to craft an index, select stocks on uh, Chinese indexes to put into your ETF or the, the uh, index that, that sort of creates the benchmark for the ETF. 
How concerned are you about transparency and a lack of it uh, that is traditionally endemic in China, especially as it relates to the incredible, already volatile industry of biotechnology? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So that's certainly an issue that you have to be very aware of. And in terms of our thinking on that, when we crafted the index, um, we only allow companies that are listed in Hong Kong or here on NASDAQ. We don't allow companies that are only listed in mainland China. And the reason for that is those are global exchanges. And we're not just looking for companies that want to be leaders in China domestically. We're looking for Chinese companies that want to be global leaders in this industry. And we think those types of companies are signing up for those two exchanges because they're outward facing and um, they have a higher degree of investor sophistication and scrutiny. And in terms of the actual selection, we're not picking our favorite stocks or anything. We're just trying to represent the entire industry. So if you're a true biotech or pharmaceutical company listed on those two exchanges, you're included. And then we give extra weighting for larger companies to give them credit for their size and stability. Now, you need to make the distinction between companies that are offering biotechnology solutions in China, and maybe foreign-based, as opposed to those that are domestically based, correct? That's Just to right. make sure. That's right. We have two uh, criteria. You either have to have your headquarters in China, or you have to drive 51% of either your revenue or your pipeline value. So if it's just like a U.S. company that's dabbling in the region, it wouldn't be included in this. We only want companies that are focused or based in, um, in that geography. One thing that I'm struck by is if you're targeting companies with global ambitions, how do the recent trade tensions factor in, if at all, given the fact that the U.S. and China appear to be in an escalating spat? It, it's affected the valuations a lot. So um, the stocks are down about 30% over the last two months for that reason. And also there's a, a vaccine scandal issue that's going on there right now. Um, so it's affected sentiment a lot, but I actually don't think it'll hurt this industry fundamentally. I think both the United States and China see this sector as something that affects human health and they don't want to use that as a bartering tool. So for example... A couple weeks before the trade war started, China completely eliminated tariffs on cancer medicines to zero. And they said they want to do that for other types of innovative medicines. And I don't think the timing of that was accidental. I think they did that as a message to say we don't really want to you know, do something that's going to affect the, you know, the health and well-being of, of the citizens. And so... It's affected stocks from a sentiment standpoint and will, you know, while this is still an issue, but fundamentally, at least I hope it won't, you know, affect actual investment or or drug development. Hutchison China Meditech. The company is listed both in London and in New York. Tell us about this company and how it helped China celebrate a landmark. Yeah, so this just happened yesterday. So this company, their executive offices are based in Hong Kong and all their R&D takes place in Shanghai. Uh, people might be familiar with a billionaire named Li Ka-shing. He's kind of the Warren Buffett of that region. This company was founded, it's part of the Hutchinson Wampoa Group. And they developed a colorectal cancer drug called Fruquitinib um, that was approved yesterday. And we view it as a landmark watershed event because it's the first innovative cancer medicine to be entirely discovered and developed and approved within China. For example, it 
succeeded in a large phase three trial, and the results of that were published in the Journal of American Medical Association. That was a first. Um, so this is as high quality as it gets. And that's the whole idea here is that there are companies there now conducting world-class science and developing drugs that are at the cutting edge. And this was just the first of that happening, specifically in cancer. And we hope that, you know, it's going to be a recurring story over the coming years as more companies like that develop drugs, not just for the China region. You may see that drug here on the market in the United States one day. It's in trials right now. Brad Lonkar, thank you so much for being with us. Brad Lonkar, chief executive of Lonkar Investments based in Lenexa, Kansas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.